0: In the last lecture, we looked at Nietzsche's philosophy of power. The will to power I maintained was an ontological claim, which we need to grasp if we are to overcome nihilism. In this lecture, I want to look at how Nietzsche introduces new forms of thought worthy of the will to power. Primarily, I want to focus on what he means by Ubermensch, which has been said about this concept. It has become synonymous with everything from Nazism... Freudian sublimation, to liberal individualism, to political anarchism, to eugenics, to the last man of existentialism, to more recently as a North Star for the alt-right. That the Uberbitch lends itself to such a diversity of concepts already tells us something about how we come to understand the term. We come with bias, attempting to arrest its meaning, projecting our own tastes and predilections upon it. This indicates that the term Ubermensch itself is resistant to classification. Still, it is a term which Nietzsche places great stock in. And thus, speaking to Aratrustra, Nietzsche says, the overman is the meaning of the earth. So it is a pretty important in Nietzsche's view. Here, I will begin by excluding some potential interpretations of what the Ubermensch is in order to get a clearer sense of what Nietzsche understands by it. This will allow me to explain how the question of the Ubermensch relates to his concept of Amor fati and Nietzsche's optimistic fatalism. Subsequently, I will explain how the Ubermensch reviews the stakes of Nietzsche's concept of morality and fate. Quite often, you will see Ubermensch translated as Superman. This is not at all helpful. While it kind of makes sense, the term has though too much conceptual baggage attached, evoking all kinds of notions of eugenics and DC comic book heroes, or in a more banal sense where Ubermensch means an assertion of domination or political influence. I go for the more straightforward translation of the German, where Uber means over or above, and Minch means human. So Ubermensch means overhuman. State forwardly enough, then the human is that which must be overcome. This should give us a clue straight away as to what Nietzsche is driving at. If the human is to be overcome, this implies that the determination, human, is insufficient. So Nietzsche is asking us to reframe existing definitions of what the human being is. We can no longer understand the human is determined or given, or more colloquially as finished, as in the human is definable in terms of essential predicates now and forever. Therefore, what has to be overcome for Nietzsche is our very own humanity. Another implication we can draw from the understanding of the overhuman is that it is not something classifiable in a quantitative sense. It's not something that can be totted up, so to speak, where would counts the attributes of what a human is, and which holds in all instances in all locations. Furthermore, it is not something quantified temporally. As in, the overhuman will happen at a particular date, say, 2072, Thursday evening, round about tea time. This resistance to both quantification and classification reveals something else. The overhuman does not have a particular end. The consequence of this endlessness is that we must conceive of the overhuman as a transitional being, or we need to understand ourselves as the being who is fundamentally in transition. This provides us with a truer, even more elevated self-understanding of what it means to be alive. Thus, the overcoming element of the overhuman means that we become what we really are. But what we really are is becoming. As we saw with the will to power, the will to power is a form of drive, or an impulse to self-maintain over time. Thus, to understand ourselves as over-humans is equivalent to grasping ourselves as beings in time. Or put it a little bit more concretely, we are beings in process. Will to power is always a willing beyond itself. And when we localise that to human values, we must understand it as a will to overcome ourselves and the values we impose upon ourselves. To renege on this insight is essentially to acknowledge that we are complete. That we can become nothing else. And that way lies nihilism. As I mentioned in a previous lecture, the purest expression of nihilism resides in the present, the now, the sense that we are determined here. We can no longer glimpse ourselves as having a future or having a past in this light. Hence, the overhuman names the historicity of the human, where past, present, and future are thought concurrently. If we grasp this temporal sense of life, that is, that the human being is time, then this should help us see what Nietzsche is driving at when he talks of the overhuman, and that he's not suggesting that overhumanity is something that we have, our own. The meaning of the overhuman is not intelligible in terms of propriety, as in the owning of a property. This is also why we cannot really think of the overhuman in a gendered sense. The overhuman is not necessarily male or female or even this or that identity, where this and that refer to any identity which we attach to folk, for that would be to define someone in terms of particular traits. The task for Nietzsche is to understand the historicality of the human being. That is what the overhuman is. Grasping the overhuman as a temporal being is also decisive for overcoming nihilism. If human is historicity, the human must be constituted out of deeds, events, happenings. If there are happenings, thus the overhuman itself is a form of event. And if there is event, it precludes the possibility of understanding humans from the perspective of eternity. If there are events, it follows this negates the possibility of pure nihilism, that is, nothingness. So the essence, in inverted commas, of the human being is always, therefore, potential, or dispositions and power. The overhuman is therefore the creature constituted through their dispositions, their activities, their capacities, their capabilities. What is important for Nietzsche is action. And even in a moral sense, we can only really judge people according to what they do and what they do not do. Because we need to understand the human being from the perspective of action, rather than from the perspective of eternity, the human, as overhuman, is a type of curative, albeit a contested one to the question of eternity and nihilism, or eternity as nihilism. Overhumans are historical and self-determining beings qua our humanity, and the very brute fact of our mortal life contests metaphysical nihilism. Thus, Nietzsche's insight for how to overcome nihilism is that the overhuman, because of its nature, is itself the very possibility of overcoming nihilism. This, of course, is neither settled or guaranteed, nor to be taken for granted. A further implication may be drawn from Nietzsche's Overhuman, and that is the idea that philosophy is practically formed. Quite often in philosophy we will find a distinction drawn between the theoretical and the practical. This goes back as far as Aristotle's distinction between Theoria and Phronesis. Roughly, Theoria concerned that upon which we spectate upon from afar and concerns knowledge which is unchanging. Phronesis, or practical wisdom, as it is sometimes called, relates to things which we can change. Elsewhere in philosophy you see the distinction in epistemology, where we draw a distinction between theoretical laws and practical experimentation. But to understand Nietzsche, we need to see how the distinction collapses. Theory and practice become aligned. Our acting and thinking are the same activity. To be a philosopher, to be wise, to be a lover of wisdom, requires us to be engaged actors in the concrete world. To understand the overhuman then, is to resist forms of passive self-understanding, theoretical judgments from afar. If we are to surrender to a view of the human as given, complete, then we would merely be understanding ourselves as a theoretical aggregate of properties. To do this would be to lose sight for Nietzsche of what the overhuman implies, because... To suggest that what we are is reducible to countable sets of attributes means we would be attempting to fix a set of traits to a particular thing, which is the definition of reification, as in, we would only determine the human being by objectifying ourselves or turning ourselves into a thing. To view ourselves then from the perspective of the overhuman, then we need to understand ourselves from the perspective of what we really are as needy, striving, sensuous, aspiring, dispositional beings. It is to interpret ourselves in an affirmative way. Thus, the question of human emancipation is a central philosophical concern, always for Nietzsche, and the only way we can redeem our theory of ourselves, which is commensurate with keeping our future palpable, is by doing. The joyful wisdom, the liberation that Nietzsche offers us, is to see ourselves as beings that will own our own becoming. The human is not predetermined as an aggregate of properties or in a crudely material sense which is to say, by virtue of what it is rather, the human is as it does This does not mean that we should disavow the importance of matter, but we must conceive of our material being as a form of will-to-power. By being human we have the capacity to see ourselves as being who sustain the matter that we are. In a very famous passage in Thus Spake Zarathustra Nietzsche says, we are to the ape as the overhuman is to us by this he means that the fullest expression of ourselves must have the future as a present concern. But the future is not something determinable or even definable. However, our inherent temporality, as we have already seen, precludes reducing thought to the present. This does mean, though, that it is tricky to comprehend the overhuman in a positive sense. If the overhuman has futurity as part of the very fabric of his being, then this means we are beings qua potential. Potentialities can, of course, be actualized in very different ways, but the point is for Nietzsche that as future beings, we are potential, or we are our powers and abilities, if you like. To comprehend this thought fully means that risk and death are part and parcel of being alive. This, though, is not something Nietzsche thinks humans are pleased with, since we would do anything than face down the question of our meaning, even if, quite oddly, that is what we always want. Here, one can begin to discern Nietzsche's alternative morality, or his transvaluation of values. We must then be philosophers for Nietzsche, the lovers of wisdom. Philosophical activity is the thing which reveals our fate, whether we like it or not, Beyond good and evil is something worthy of affirmation. We are thrown into a world, and we cannot step out of our historicity. But neither are we reducible to that history. Thus what Nietzsche wants us to accept is fate, or amor fati as he calls it, the love of fate. And to accept fate is, peculiarly for Nietzsche, an exercise in love. It is a form of wisdom, and it's the philo part of philosophy. We need to passionately accept who we are, where we are going, and commit to making things happen. Now to say whatever happens happens sounds, on face value, like some cheap pop wisdom, the type of wisdom may be found on bumper stickers saying shit happens. There's a good degree of truth to all that, but Nietzsche is not satisfied with luxuriating in the scatological. Whatever happens is inevitably the actualization of my own historicity. one's happiness after the death of God is within our own hands it is imminent rather than transcendent and no longer dependent on the affirmation of life beyond the practices which constitute it. Nor is it it dependent on some simplistic idea of freedom as an abstract freedom of choice. But does all this not sound somewhat fatalistic? That one cannot escape the constraints of the world one finds oneself in? That the world cannot be otherwise? We are condemned to pessimism. Not so for Nietzsche. We need to disentangle fatalism the fate part of amor fati, from determinism. Determinism is premised on an abstract causal model of reality. Determined person is the person with an aggregate of caused properties. Nietzsche's fatalism, on the other hand, is understood in terms of actions. For a determinist, action makes no sense, if only because the determining precedes activity. Nietzsche is more interested in simply acting, in being alive, and not being... Absolutely constrained by the limitations any predetermined natural causes imposes upon us. Faith then must be loved. The thought of the overman is a passionate activity. To do honor to a self-interpretation of ourselves as will to power, we need to accept the love of fate rather than our fate is determined. For example, I don't know, my genes made me do it, or I don't need to lose weight because I am naturally obese, or. I don't have a head for maths, or other such stories we tell ourselves for not committing ourselves to higher forms of life. Overhuman constantly imposes upon us a demand for affirmation, and this is hard to live up to. And the overhuman is like a form of conscience, provoking us out of our dissatisfaction. Because the overhuman strictly does not exist, even Zarathustra is not an overhuman, but that the thought of overhuman, in tandem with the will to power and later eternal recurrence, can provide us with a bridge, the idea being that we are a bridge between ape and overhuman. The imperative of Amor Fatai reveals that affirmation is constitutive of what we are. That is, we can be yesayers rather than naysayers. Amor fati asks of us that we understand ourselves as vital beings, beings that can be spiritually free alongside our natural life. And we can also be sincere, as in not deceived about ourselves, And we can redeem, in inverted commas again, the past and present, once we live with the past and present alongside a palpable future. In a way, the Nietzschean view of happiness is not equivalent to self-preservation. In fact, one can say, as Nietzsche does himself, that self-preservation is the antithesis to self-overcoming. With self-preservation, we only view ourselves as determined, natural beings, which we are only dominated by the impulse to shore up our life in a narrow pursuit of hedonic interest. With self-preservation, we are devoted to immediate gratification, to finding happiness in the present moment. With self-preservation, our only ideal can be material pleasure, which really amounts to the feeling of security one acquires from an accumulation of material goods. In diametric opposition to the overhuman, Nietzsche calls the ideal of pleasure the last human. The last human is the human satiated, smug, self-satisfied, in the happiness afforded by a prosperous society. We have seen this type already in the passive nihilist. The last human thus embodies a form of reactivity, reacting against risk and experiment, denying new possibilities, and merely following the dictates of comfort and a safe space of material wealth. The last human denotes then a negative form of self-relation rather than a constructive form, One identifies with monetary security which is an abstraction from actions or deed which allows one to wallow in contentment. Now, security and happiness may seem like worthy goals after all, who does not want to be secure and happy? But they are not fulfilling. The last human is thus a passionless existence free of commitment and responsibility free of great things. We should see here also Nietzsche's preference for perspectivity over relativism. Relativism is the philosophical position where all truths and values are of equal validity, as such a world divide of the finesse of judgment and empty distinction. Furthermore, without distinction we become exposed to a levelling effect, where no viewpoint is discerned as of value, since everyone wants, feels and thinks the same things. This levelling leads to what Nietzsche calls elsewhere her thinking. For the overhuman to be palpable, to understand ourselves within a our horizon of becoming, we must renounce the comforts, privileges and knowledges of herd thinking. This means that while the last human luxuriates in the numbing effects of material prosperity, the overhuman attempts to exist beyond conventional morality, as it is understood from the perspective of the herd. That which is called morality is really an abjuration of responsibility, and is in fact the most unethical thing of all, since the morality of the herd is equivalent to and unthinking working out of prearranged prescriptions. To Nietzsche, disobedience is a prerequisite for moral decision-making, since the task of the philosopher is to think the emergence of new rules and new norms which do not congeal into an iteration of past forms. So, while we can have lots of nice, shiny things, be well fed with a beautiful house, a beautiful husband, a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, and secure with nice thick walls around us and content how well the project of our own self-preservation is progressing, but this is not necessarily fulfilling. An absence of pain and suffering, the utilitarian ideal, do not give us any perspective on a rich sense of life as lived. They are not fulfilling because we are not exposing ourselves to the possibility of contestation, challenge, resistance, and thus we are not exposed to fati and acceptance of the necessity of suffering. As Baird Magnus puts it, we suffer from chronophobia, or the fear of time. In a chronophobic pose, we will resist, resent and flee from the impositions of temporal life. Chronophobia is the reason for our perverse enjoyment of slave morality, of the herd. And this is an important thing to remember. We really, really enjoy a life of satiation. It is perhaps the most seductive thing of all. After all, who among us really wants to sacrifice a life of peace and plenty? Nietzsche's point is, though, that even if we do not want to confront ourselves as overhuman, such a life is unfulfilling, because really, that is just not what we are. We are beings who need constructive antagonism. If we don't have grist, resistance, we allow ourselves to self-relate as static. As such, we indulge in the narcissism of our own idols, or put another way, we worship ourselves, as if we were gods. We can see here Nietzsche's searing critique of Christianity as the ultimate expression of ascetic life denial. Christianity is the purest exemplar of chronophobia because it is motivated by the meanest spirit of revenge against life, and thus time is the enemy of the Christian. Only by overcoming chronophobia can we see life in its proper perspectivity. This does not mean that we can redeem the past, not redeem the future. To do so misses the necessity of action, for letting time be as it comes. Nietzsche's distaste for Christianity stems, then, from the will to resent time, to revenge ourselves against time, to resent that fact that we cannot overturn the past, or that we cannot own the future, but instead to see ourselves as forms of permanent perishing, that is, beings in time, And this is Nietzsche's ultimate objection to Christianity. Christianity favours immortal life rather than mortal life. The overhuman thus is only intelligible from the perspective of both life and death. The last human is not a particular person, and neither for that matter is the overhuman. As the subtitle of Thus Spake Zarathustra suggests, the book is for everyone and no one. No one is immune to the vicissitudes and vagaries of time, and thus we are all last humans and overhumans. A spiritual sickness occurs though when we allow ourselves to congeal into past forms or close off future forms because there we are only interpreting the present in terms of the past. Equally, when we idolise the past we are also delimiting the future in terms of a particular version of pastness. The last human is thus a malfunctioning version of the overhuman or a suboptimal version of ourselves. With the overhuman we can assert our spiritual freedom rather than allowing ourselves to be publicly interpreted by the uniformity of herd morality. When we do this, when we interpret ourselves publicly, we only allow ourselves to be seen from the perspective of the day. In Nietzsche, things like monotheistic religion, nationalism, or any other political isms are examples of this. For instance, nationalists tend to interpret their existence by taking credit for the achievement and evaluations of others, enchained to a hollow conformity to the imperatives and standards of a fictional we of a nation. That the we is fictional does not, though, preclude actual efficacy. Fictions are realer than we imagine for Nietzsche. Thus it would be an unfair, I think, on Nietzsche to say he wants us to absolutely forsake our mediocrity, our, our average everydayness, as Martin Heidegger will call it. We do own up to all these things, or we do exist in all of these things. What we need to see as over-humans is not so much that we are average. This is a fate that befalls all of us at one point or another. Nor is it just that we need to overcome ourselves in some kind of voluntaristic moment of self-assertion. It is more the case, I think, that Nietzsche wants us to reassess what self-satisfaction is. He's not so much bothered that we pursue our wants, aspirations and desires, but rather he wants us to expand our conceptions as to what counts as a good life. Instead of delimiting satisfaction or fulfilment to egoistic self-interest or enjoyment, where what is good is tied to our natural tastes and inclinations, this would be a very diminished form of satisfaction. Nietzsche, above all, wants us to disrupt a laziness of thinking by showing that Fulfillment is not given, predetermined, fixed, but rather an activity continually being worked out. This can now help us to understand Nietzsche's famous truth is a mobile army of metaphors claim. We are the beings that need to grasp our fati. We are historically positioned in all types of society. Indeed, according to the necessity of fati, we are inseparable from them. We are not, however, reduced to them. Truth is inseparable from morality for Nietzsche. We are constituted from activity and thus are only intelligible in terms of our practical identities with any given society. When we think with the herd, with the human all too human, we adhere to conventions as if they were the truth. Whether moral or epistemological truths, these masquerade as dominant forms of narrative for organising how we relate to one another. And dictating those things to which we feel obliged. If our dominant stories tell us that we ought to organise our societies in a religious way, then that story will inform our lives. If one of the dominant stories we tell ourselves is that the meeting of our basic needs emerges from a competition for finite resources, then we will understand ourselves as dictated to by the logic of the market. We are that which is competitive. If we are beings who are told that economic growth is guaranteed and sustainable despite minor blips, then we will conceive ourselves as beings with an infinite future, where the future amounts to nothing more than a slightly tweaked version of the present. Nietzsche's point is really that all of these are idols. Versions of society we assume to be natural. Thus the herd that needs to be overcome is the herd that is us. In conclusion, Nietzsche's philosophy is all about the labour of love. The most important thing we can give is both our love and our labour, our activities. That is a simple enough secret to life. If both these things manifest themselves in a purposeful life, you're on a bit of a winner. This should not be seen as some kind of ethereal or wishy-washy thought either for Nietzsche. Nietzsche is enough of a realist to understand the enormous burdens Amor fati imposes on us. The truth is that our lives are never enough. We are never happy, or it never arrives. But once we acknowledge that, we can infuse our lives with passionate commitments. So we stand a chance of redeeming ourselves, as long as we understand redeem not as a means to salvation, but as a form of enriching concrete activity. Similarly, the love of fate necessarily demands a gratitude. A gratitude to the cruel accident of my own existence. Once we can learn to do that, we can do anything for Nietzsche. This is when we are not beholden to the traumas or idols of the past, or in a word, regret, that saddest of all human activities. Nothing is as cruel and purposeless as unfulfilled ambition. The gratitude of love of faith says yes to all of life, and especially to a life beyond my own narrow self-interest. Self-overcoming is to hold the thought of the over-human as key to human prosperity. The love of fate requires conceiving myself as fatally chained to the development of humanity. Not just my own particular spell on this earth, but the extent to which my existence transfigures the world of humans. It is not directed to my own narrow self-preservation, but to the future. To be the being that loves one's fate is to let the thought of the over-human suffuse our existence, so we can be the furtherers of humankind.